Welcome to Spatular Extremities, a podcast for all of your DIY, copied and pasted, and cobbled together culture. Do not adjust your volume. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Spatular Extremities. I'm Gene, your host, and uh, it's a lovely Tuesday. So before I begin the first episode on coom transmissions and uh, throbbing gristle, I wanted to just give a brief background. This show was originally going to be called How to Destroy a Subculture, and uh, my wife hated that name, so she came up with Spatular Extremities. She's really good at coming up with uh, sort of weird and pithy names for things. But as I say in the introduction, this show is about sort of bits of culture that are cobbled together, sort of DIY, and situations in which someone or some group of people decided that they were tired of what they were seeing around them and they wanted to do something new. And there are two purposes for this. The first is just sort of a a general interest thing. Just, you know, some of this stuff is just really interesting. And the second purpose is if there is someone out there who has some idea or who wants to do something that is positive and interesting and fun and different and that person either is kind of stuck somewhere in the thought process or that person is thinking, well, maybe this is just a little bit too weird or a little too out there. Well, this show is kind of intended to give people like that a bit of encouragement. And the reason that I wanted to start with coom transmissions and throbbing gristle is in part because they have a massive legacy. Aside from spawning a number of different bands, such as Psychic TV, Chris and Cozy, The Carter Tutti Void, Jack the Tab, uh, spawning the entire genre of industrial music, and even being behind the creation of a cult, which I'll I'll probably do a separate episode on them. Aside from all of that, this group really helped inspire this podcast. Just the fact that a couple of oddball hippies in the late 60s got together and sort of on purpose and sort of on accident created this vast underground scene. It kind of made me say, you know what? Do your thing, man. So here we are, my friends. So a lot of people have probably heard of Throbbing Gristle. You may, though, have not heard of Coombe Transmissions. Now, before I get started on that, I, uh, (laughs) I don't know how copyright works, and I can't afford a lawyer. So I'm not using any of their music because I don't know if that would be 
legal or not. So the music you hear is stuff I put together on Caustic, just FYI. Caustic is a great app. You can get it for like three bucks on the iTunes store if you have any interest in synthesizers. If you have any information on that, you can at me at, uh, on Twitter at Disordered Gene. That's uh, Disordered Gene on Twitter. Anyway, before I get into the history, I wanted to read something to you from the year 2017 from the city of Hull in England. That is where the group got their start. And in the year 2017, it appears that the city of Hull put on some kind of a cultural retrospective for the group. That's Coombe Transmissions, not Throbbing Gristle. And the webpage says, Name, Coombe Transmissions, formed in Hull, 1969. Occupation, performance artists and musicians. According to conservative MP Nicholas Fairbairn in 1976, quote, These people are the wreckers of civilization, end quote. Core members, Genesis P. Orridge and Cozy Fanny Tutti. Their work in brief. Coombe Transmissions were a music and performance art collective. Openly confrontational and deliberately controversial, they were pioneers in live art and experimental music making. Their performance events happened in galleries, clubs, in their warehouse in Hull, or out in the street, often taking Hull's Saturday shoppers by surprise. At their most extreme, Coombe performances included sex acts and display of painful self-mutilation. They also created music and soundscapes, as well as using photography and print to create collages. Coombe were multidisciplinary artists, out to disrupt what anyone thought art could be. And if you really want to see something funny, there's a, uh, there's a video somewhere on YouTube, I'll have to find it, of a bunch of really nice, respectable-looking people standing in an art gallery looking at video monitors of Coombe Transmissions. And I looked at that and I thought, my God, things have changed. You know, I remember the the '90s with the with Robert Maplethorpe and the the big kerfuffle surrounding that. And I thought, man, we are truly living in a different world nowadays. Seems that the powers that be are just as uptight as they always were. They're just uptight about different things now. But anyway, uh, Coombe Transmissions started when a nice young man named Neil Andrew Megson met a nice young woman named Christine Carol Newby, and the two of them moved in together and changed their names to Genesis P. Orridge and Cozy Fanny Tutti, and the rest is history. And this is from a book called Crossovers by someone named John Albert Walker. Said, uh, Genesis P. Orridge was born in Manchester in 1950. He came from a middle-class background, went to a grammar school in Stockport, and then, in 1968, to Hull University to study social administration. In his youth, GPO was impressed by the works of the Dadaists Alistair Crowley, Jack Kerouac, Joyce, Sartre, Camus, and Warhol. William Burroughs was also influential, especially his cut-up method of composition. GPO's musical tastes encompassed the Rolling Stones, Frank Zappa, the Velvets, and John Coltrane. Since happenings were in fashion in the 1960s, GPO organized some with the help of school and college friends. 
From the beginning, he evinced a desire to mix media, to improvise, and to perform live. In 1968, he participated in the early Worm Rock Band at the Trans and the Transmedia Exploration Group. At Hull University, he met Kosi Fanny Tutti, and they formed Coombe Transmissions. An early event, the Ministry of Antisocial Insecurity, took place in Hull's Farron's Art Gallery. In the early 1970s, GPO and CFT moved to London where, having established a reputation in the art world, they received grants from the Arts Council for activities in Britain and from the British Council for events in various European cities. Their relations with the official art world were uneasy. Eventually, sorry, eventually they declared it pretentious and elitist, and the public monies they received were later to provoke the wrath of the popular press. Yeah, I can imagine. An issue of central concern to Coombe was, was the boundary that separates art from everyday life. The effect of this boundary was to create an antiseptic realm in which works of art were contemplated in a distanced, detached manner. As a result, art had lost its magical power to disturb. It had ceased to function in the important way that it did in primitive tribal societies. Although rituals and performances of various kinds are to be found in all spheres of modern life, only a few specially designated ones count as art. Coombe undermined the art-life distinction by transposing activities from one sphere to the other, and by the adoption of shock tactics. Ultimately, their aim was to destroy the barrier altogether. Walker continues, Some of Coombe's early performances were innocuous enough. I recall a low-key piece about one of Marcel Duchamp's ready-mades, which took place in a South London arts centre in front of a tiny audience. Another work, a solo performance by Cosi at the Hayward Gallery, consisted of a gentle, balletic display of bodily movement. Candlelight was used to create a magical atmosphere and a large audience, including many children, found the performance hypnotic and pleasurable. As time passed, however, the desire to outrage and transgress took over. Like Yoko Ono, Cozy began to slice her clothes while Genesis began to simulate masturbation. In brutal performances similar to those of the Viennese actions or direct art of Gunter Bruce, Otto Mule, and Hermann Nietzsche, Coombe degraded, humiliated, and hurt themselves in public. Some in the audiences felt sick. Others found the experience cathartic. However, a much more serious scandal erupted in October 1976 as a result of a Coombe exhibit exhibition entitled Prostitution at the ICA Gallery in London. Cozy had been earning money as a stripper and as a model for softcore pornography. In her eyes, this was a form of art or popular culture, even though it was not recognized as such by the art world. One could say she had prostituted herself for the sake of art. Her frankness in admitting this, by including photographic examples in the Coombe show, caused a moral panic in the, po in the popular press. Beside the photos, the exhibition contained whips, chains, used sanitary towels, blood-stained clothes, and a sculpture. I love that. Let me let me read that again. Okay. I love this. Beside the photos, the exhibition contained whips, chains, used sanitary towels, 
blood blood stained clothes and a sculpture you know boy I, I was I was riding along with this and right until you got to the sculpture and then I said man that's fucked up you got all this and a sculpture one of these things is not like the other anyway performances by Coombe were due to be given during the course of the exhibition but because of the public uproar these were cancelled and the exhibition's contents censored a provocative press release ensured a crowded opening at which the group's Throbbing Gristle and LSD played. Yeah, and mind you that Throbbing Gristle, half of Throbbing Gristle, is putting on the exhibition in the first place. A professional stripper was hired for the evening, a clear-cut example of crossover, and was disconcerted by the art world context in which she found herself. <laughs> well... The popular press affected to be shocked by the waste of public money on a sex show. In statements to the press, GPO claimed that Coombs' aims were to parody all that was wrong with the art world and to infiltrate the mass media in order to show how they distort information. And just to give you an idea of what went on at the prostitution exhibition, I'm going to read something to you from the website brainwash.com that is quotes Genesis extensively. And mind you, I, I this uh, this particular part of the podcast, I'm going to warn you, this is not safe for life, okay? So if you've got co-workers or children or an HR representative anywhere near you, uh, tell them to get lost. This is, uh, this is from Genesis talking about the prostitution exhibition. It says, Genesis recalls, I used to do things like stick severed chicken's heads over my penis and then try to masturbate them whilst pouring maggots all over it. In Los Angeles in 1976 at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, Cozy and I did a performance where I was naked, I drank a bottle of whiskey and stood on a lot of tacks. And then I gave myself enemas with blood, milk, and urine, and then broke wind so a jet of blood and milk and urine combined shot across the floor in front of Chris Burden and assorted visual artists. I then licked it off the floor, which was a not clean concrete floor. Then I got a 10-inch nail and tried to swallow it, which made me vomit. Then I licked the vomit off the floor, and Cozy helped me lick the vomit off the floor and she was naked and trying to sever her vagina to her navel with a razor blade. Well, she cut it from her vagina to her navel with a razor blade, and she injected blood into her vagina, which then trickled out, and we sucked the blood from her vagina into a syringe and injected it into eggs painted black, which we then tried to eat, and we vomited again, which we then used for enemas. Then I needed to urinate, so I urinated into a large glass bottle and drank it all and drank it all while it was still warm. This was all improvised. And then we gradually crawled to each other, licking the floor clean, because we didn't we don't like to leave a mess, you know. After all, it's not fair to insult an art gallery. Chris Burden, who's known for being outrageous, walked out with his girlfriend, saying, This is not art, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen, and these people are sick. In Amsterdam, we did a performance in the red light district. The people in the theater asked, what kind of lighting do you want? And we said, oh, just put on all the red lights. Then we played tapes of Charles Manson's LP, Lie, 
cut up with soundtracks of trains going through thunderstorms, and we went through all kinds of different fetishes. Sleazy cut his throat and had to kind of had to kind of do a tourniquet on his throat, and Cozy and I did this thing of spitting at each other, and then licking all the spit off, and then licking each other's genitals, and then having sexual intercourse while her hair was set on fire with candles. There was an audience of around 2,000 people. And each day it got heavier, so that on Easter Sunday I was crucified on a wooden cross, whipped with two bullwhips covered in human vomit and chicken wings and chicken legs, while I had to hold burning torches. People in the audience could hear the skin burning on my hands. And then I urinated down Cozy's legs while she stuck a lighted candle up her vagina, so there were flames coming out of her vagina. Just ordinary ways of avoiding the commercials on the television. And my friends, if you are still with me after that, I heartily congratulate you. And with that, I am going to take a brief break, and I will be back in a moment to talk about Throbbing Gristle, which is the band that came out of all of this. Alright everyone, welcome back to Spatular Extremities, and thank you for uh, sticking with me. This is the second part of the show. first part was on Coombe Transmissions, and the second part is going to be on Throbbing Gristle, the band that came out of it all. Now, the band was made up of the aforementioned Genesis Peorage and Cozy Fonituti, and also Chris Carter and Peter Sleazy Christofferson. Now, the band started in 1976, sort of in tandem with Coombe Transmissions, and they are the people who coined the term industrial music. They are the ones that started the label Industrial Records, which, and they facetiously called the music Industrial Music for Industrial People. And this is from the research book Industrial Culture. <clears throat> it says... In 1976, Industrial Records was founded by Throbbing Gristle specifically to explore the psychological, visual, and aural territory suggested by the term industrial. They demonstrated that with hardly any money they could produce records and cassettes with outstanding graphic standards and deviant recorded content, from death threats to factory noise to vanilla smooth ABBA tributes. TG focused on the control process, fighting the information war in a general revolt against the obedience instinct. As they put it, we're just troublemakers, really, because otherwise the world's a very boring place to be. Indeed it is. Special interests included tortures, cults, wars, psychological techniques of persuasion, unusual murders, especially by children and psychopaths, forensic pathology, venereology, concentration camp behavior, the history of uniforms and insignia, Aleister Crowley's magic, and much more. There were also deliberate attempts to apply the cut-up techniques of William S. Burroughs and Brian Geisen. And this is a quote from Genesis Peorage from a book called Rip It Up and Start Again. And if that title doesn't make you want to sing, I don't know what will. 
but it says, uh, Peorage told Voltage Magazine, it was literally an experiment. Let's set up a band. Let's give it a really inappropriate name. Throbbing gristle in Yorkshire slang for is Yorkshire slang for an erect penis. Let's not have a drummer because rock bands have drummers. Let's not learn how to play music. Let's put in a lot of content in terms of the words and ideas. So normally a band would be music, skill, style, and all those other things. We threw away all the usual parameters for a band and, let, and said, let's have content, authenticity, and energy. Let's refuse to look like or play like anything that's acceptable as a band and see what happens. The book says further, <clears throat> TG believed that you should approach any instrument the way a child will. Genesis Peorage picked the bass because it was the instrument he was least qualified to play. Tutti likewise chose the guitar because it was the one to, the one to which she was least attracted. She never, she never learned how to play chords, but like the female no-wave guitarists, used a slide to generate hair-raising glissandi, or just bashed the strings using it as a rhythm instrument, and, via a battery of effects, a source of abstract noise. Two interesting things. I think it was, uh, it was Sleazy who created some kind of weird device called a gristleizer. And I actually have a guitar pedal that was modeled after the gristleizer. And I gotta tell you that when you plug pretty much any instrument into it, I've done it with both a Fender Squire and uh, a cheap old Casio keyboard. It makes a really almost nauseating sound. It's really a fun instrument or a fun little pedal. Second, the lore as I understand it is that Cozy did not know how to play guitar, but also that she said that the guitar was too heavy, so they took the thing and they put it to like a table saw and they cut the thing down to look like a like a stick. And you can find pictures of her online up to even a few years ago playing this this mutilated guitar. It's overall pretty nifty. Anyway, the book goes on. Uh, Apart from the rhythm tracks built by Chris Carter, TG songs were written live from scratch with only the vaguest mu musical guidelines discussed in advance. Peorage generally improvised the words, too, after briefly consulting with the band about possible lyrical topics. The song Persuasion, for instance, was composed during a gig at Notting Hill's squat venue Centro, uh, Centro Iberico. Just before going on stage, Peorage asked Christofferson what he should sing about today and received the reply Persuasion, people being cajoled into doing things, sexual things, against their will being one of Sleazy's obsessions. Peorage ad-libbed lyrics about a guy pressurizing his partner to be photographed for the reader's wives section of a porn mag. There were upsides and downsides to TG's fixation on spontaneous composition slash combustion. Check the live recordings and in a hangover from their performance art days, TG exhaustively, exhaustively documented every show, eventually releasing all of them, and you'll encounter passages of astonishing intensity. Molten distended soundscapes like solar gas 
festooning off the surface of a star, strafing streaks and zaps from some audio battle zone. But inevitably, TG developed an arsenal of riffs and tricks as predictable as any musical language, gouging bass blasts, pounding surges, upward careening arcs, as with free improvisation for all the commotion and turmoil, the palette of sound colors could start to feel somewhat samey. Appropriately enough, TG's gigs were assaults on, hold on, sorry. Oh, TG's gigs were sadistic assaults on the audience. TG pursued a metabolic music that directly impacted on the nervous system. They were fascinated by military research into the use of infrasound as a non-lethal weapon, which certain frequencies triggered vomiting, epileptic seizures, and even involuntary defecation. It kind of makes me wonder if, wonder if anybody uh, involuntarily shit themselves at one of their shows. Uh, this is from Genesis P. Orridge. People think music's just for the ears. They forget it goes into every surface of the body, the pores, the cells. It affects the blood vessels, declared Peorage. The effects of volume, ultra-high and sub-bass frequencies, and sheer repetition induced altered states in the band, too. Peorage recalled his whole body shaking and trembling. Sometimes he'd reach the point where he was talking in tongues, a mere vessel for forces beyond. TG also used lighting as a retinal barrage, convulsive strobes, high-power halogen lamps aimed into the audience's faces. And in 1981, they split off into two bands. And I'm not going to get into that because I don't have the time to do that long of a show today. But I'm going to end this on sort of a personal note. Their final album, Throbbing Gristle's final album, is a live record that they made in San Francisco called Mission of Dead Souls. And while the album only has a three out of five on all music, I personally think that it is their best album. But part of that is due to my own experience. Now, in the year 2000, I was living in the Bay Area and I had just moved up there and I didn't really know anybody but I was enrolled in a local community college and I was taking a class in two-dimensional black and white design. And we had an assignment that consisted of black construction paper and white construction paper. And we were, the assignment was to tear pieces of one and paste it onto the other. And that was pretty much the only parameter that we were given for this assignment. And I will be the first to admit that I am not a particularly talented visual artist. Uh, my, my talent is more in writing, but that's for another day. So I really had no idea what I was going to do for this project. So what I did is I went home and late the night before it was due, I bought a big jug of Carlo Rossi and I put Mission of Dead Souls on the CD player. And I proceeded to get really wasted and at some point in the middle of the song Discipline, I just tore that black construction paper, pa paper to shreds and pasted it down 
and it on the white paper and it looked like a big old claw had just ripped through this white background and that has to be the best piece of visual art that I have ever created and it is a damn crying shame that I lost that thing so I highly recommend that you pick up Mission of Dead Souls and if you can't for whatever reason, if you don't have the cash or if you can't find it, whatever, there's a live recording uh, on YouTube of Throbbing Gristle performing Discipline. I think it's in Culver City. So I really would say at least give that a look because it is some of the most minimal, intense, amazing music out there. It starts with this incredibly simple and amazing rhythm. And then Genesis just turns, it's this, this little guy with a shaved head just starts tearing around the stage like a fucking demon. And I gotta say, I have seen some amazing performances in my day, but that, I... That is, if I could teleport back to the early 80s, that is, I would go to that show because it is just wild. So I, I will close on that note. I, I seriously suggest that you look this up and, uh, and give, it a, give it a listen and a view and, uh, and, and find Mission of Dead Souls while you're at it. And I, I really appreciate you all listening in on this. Uh, this is the first episode. I do not have a co-host yet. Hey, also, you know, if you feel like being a co-host for this, if this sounds like something that is interesting to you and you're, uh, it would make it easier if you're in Pacific, the Pacific Standard Time Zone. But if not, uh, once again, at me on Twitter if you think it might, if you think this sounds like fun. I don't know what the next episode is going to be on or uh, when it's going to be. Hopefully it'll be within a week. But this has been Spatular Extremities and once again I really appreciate you all listening in and in the future maybe I'll iron out some of my technical difficulties. So hey, have a great night and I'll be talking to you soon, alright? Bye.